Fundamental reform is needed to improve building safety and to rebuild trust among residents of high-rise buildings. The current system is far too complex. It lacks clarity on who is responsible for what, and there is inadequate oversight and enforcement. I'm proposing a new system which will overhaul the way that buildings are currently constructed and the way in which those who construct them behave. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and over the next four episodes, we're going to be examining fire safety in tall buildings. As chair of the Independent Review of Building Regulations and Fire Safety, Dame Judith Hackett has just explained, fundamental change is needed to ensure that all tall buildings in the UK are safe from fire. Her review, published this May, found that the current system of building regulations and fire safety is not fit for purpose. The responsibilities of those procuring, designing, constructing and maintaining buildings are not clear. The regulations and guidance are ambiguous and inconsistent and processes to drive building safety requirements are weak and complex, with poor record keeping. Competence is patchy, product testing is opaque and insufficient and concerns of residents often go unheard. Yet engineers are far from indifferent. Every day, new solutions, technologies, designs are created that make buildings better. But under the current system in the UK, they're not used enough. And why is this? Because in most cases, meeting fire safety standards through the building regulations is not considered a minimum requirement, it's more of a ceiling. Developers want to maximise profit on their investments, and in the public sector there's continued pressure to build more for less, and cost is at the crux of every decision. And this drives already low margins in construction down even further. An extra staircase or evacuation lift takes away lettable space from a tall building. Why increase costs if you can use the current system to justify having only one escape route or not installing sprinklers? Add in the lack of clear accountability around fire safety requirements and weak enforcement from building control departments and it's not surprising that we failed on fire safety. Dame Judith believes that an overhaul of the system is needed to make tall buildings safer and she's calling on the industry to take the lead in delivery. I am now calling upon industry leaders to step forward and work with government to start delivering reforms today. The government has accepted the recommendations made by Dame Judith, but implementation of a new system is going to take time. Her first recommendation is that a new joint competent authority is created that includes local authority building control, fire and rescue authorities and the health and safety executive to manage risks throughout the entire building life cycle. The regulatory system itself will also be changed to prioritise the safety case in planning and construction. The current system, where a developer can appoint an approved inspector to provide building control oversight instead of going through building control functions of the local authority, was identified as being a significant weakness, which is hardly surprising. Under the current system, developers or building clients can employ a consultant whose role is to ensure that the building meets building regulations. However, this consultant then reports back to the client, who's also the paymaster, which is a clear conflict of interest. The duty holder effectively chooses and pays for its own regulator. In future, approved inspectors will report to the new joint competent authority. 
And what's more, tall buildings will have to pass through a series of gateway points to ensure that the building as a system is safe, not just during construction, but once it's operational. This includes ensuring that the full safety case is submitted to the Joint Competent Authority before construction starts. A major risk for building projects identified in the Hackett Report is the fact that under certain forms of contract, original designs can be significantly altered if contractors find a cheaper way of delivering the same specification, a process described as value engineering. However, these changes can greatly affect the fire safety design for a building. Switching to a cheaper cladding system, for example, might save thousands of pounds in construction, but there's no requirement to demonstrate how this would affect overall fire safety, and there's no regulatory scrutiny if such changes are made. Under the new system, any alterations to designs will have to go through a new change control process, where the Joint Competent Authority will be notified if the design differs in any way from that which was approved under the full plan submission before construction began. Changes will be identified either as major, such as structural changes, or minor, such as material alterations. In practice, this means that detailed design and constructability will have to be complete long before construction begins, meaning contractors getting involved earlier in projects, and this is something that's proven to bring about many other benefits on major schemes. Just as significantly, clients will have to understand how their projects are being delivered, requiring greater levels of competence within these organisations. At the same time, the Joint Competent Authority will have much stronger enforcement powers to hold those responsible for poor practice to account. Existing enforcement is weak and underutilised. When local authorities do push for penalties for unsafe construction, the fines are usually low and costs for local authorities are not recovered. In most cases, enforcement action required often doesn't correct the unsafe building work. So overall, there's a reluctance from local authority building control departments to take action. The new system proposed major changes here, where the Joint Competent Authority can issue improvement orders or stop work if there's issues with a building that affect its safety. Non-compliance with these would become a criminal offence. Unfortunately, these extensive findings are too late for the 72 residents who perished in the fire that ravaged the 68-metre-tall Grenfell Tower in Kensington, London last year. At 12.54am on the 14th of June, the resident of flat 16 on level 4 of the 25-storey tower called 999 to report a fire in his kitchen. Three hours later, the entire structure was engulfed in flames as the fire raced along its cladding. The aluminium composite material consisted of two 0.5mm aluminium sheets with a 3mm polyethylene filling sandwiched between them. The product, called Rainabon PE, surrounded the tower and it was this polyethylene layer that was highly combustible. The cladding was a new feature, added as part of a building refurbishment between 2012 and 2016. Tragically for the residents, no one considered what would happen to the existing fire strategy once the building was refurbished. The original design of the reinforced concrete tower with only a single staircase relied on compartmentalisation. So the building was designed and constructed that the fire would be isolated within the point of origin. But the refurbishment project fundamentally changed the behaviour of the structure during fire, meaning that it failed to meet requirements of building regulations in resisting fire spread. Polyethylene is a highly flammable synthetic thermoplastic polymer. 
Upon exposure to heat, polyethylene will melt and drip, possibly flowing whilst burning or generating flaming droplets. Its melting temperature is around 130 to 135 degrees Celsius. And its heat of combustion, which to remind you is a measure of the total energy that a material is capable of releasing under optimum combustion conditions, is about 46 megajoules per kilogram. Sure, you will no doubt have noted in the commentary in the media comparing the polyethylene material within the ACM rainscreen cassettes at Grenfell Tower to petrol or diesel. This is likely to be on the basis, as I've already shown, that the heats of combustion of petrol and diesel are similar to the polyethylene used in Renovon PE ACM products. This is Professor of Fire and Structures Luke Bisbee from Edinburgh University who has been called upon as an expert witness to give evidence at the public inquiry into the Grenfell Tower fire. He's been researching ignition of the facade and spread of fire for the inquiry. The fire was first reported at 12.54am on the 14th of June 2017, within the kitchen of flat 16 on level 4 of Grenfell Tower. Over the course of the subsequent 15 minutes or so, the fire burned within the kitchen of flat 16. The fire was observed to have spread to the cladding by about 1.09 a.m. The fire then spread vertically upwards on the east face of Grenfell Tower, breaking into, breaking into flats on the floors above flat 16 as it spread. It took approximately 20 minutes for the fire to spread from level 4 to the roof. By about 1.29 a.m., the fire had reached the top of the east face. The vertical fire spread started slowly and accelerated as the fire grew in size. From here, the fire spread horizontally in both directions, described by witnesses as a whirlwind. From the east, it progressed to the north face and in the opposite direction to the south face. From the north face, it eventually spread across the west face of the structure so that by 4 a.m., just over three hours since the fire first began and was reported, it had engulfed the entire building. This should never have happened. Regulation B4 of the UK Building Regulations, 2010, Sentence 1, states that the external walls of the building shall adequately resist the spread of fire over the walls and from one building to another, having regard to the height, use, and position of the building. This functional objective clearly was not achieved at Grenfell Tower. The Grenfell Inquiry will uncover the sequence of events that led to the fire spreading from inside the tower out onto the external walls and then propagating along the tower through this combustible cladding system. But such was the ferocity of the fire, there were immediately calls for the cladding to be banned on structures and a review was undertaken to find out how many buildings around the country have this cladding on it. By June of this year, 470 buildings had been reported to be using aluminium composite materials, ACM cladding. But this wasn't the only problem that inspectors uncovered. Merlin Forer works for Greater Manchester Fire Service. He shared his experience of fire testing tall building facade systems at the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network conference held at FireX International in London this May. Engineering Matters attended the event, along with an estimated 17,000 fire professionals. Merlin Forer explained that post Grenfell, the Mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, ordered an inspection of all residential buildings, over 18 metres tall, of which there were 500 in the city region. Since the 14th of June last year, 
the Mayor of Manchester, Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, set the fire service a task. He wanted us to go and inspect every single one of those buildings. Part of inspecting all of those buildings was to ensure that he could say to the residents of Greater Manchester that they were reasonably safe. From that, we had 274 action plans. Um, those action plans were deemed necessary so that they could actually comply with the fire safety order, the regulatory reform fire safety order, which the fire service is a regulator of, not the only regulator, but is a regulator of. Um, those action plans detailed a variety of um, actions from compartmentation, fire doors, fire alarm systems, um, and removal of polyethylene cord, aluminium panels, and other systems. We found a huge amount of systems out there that are, don't comply. Certainly when we start looking at the over 300 buildings that didn't comply or deemed not to comply to the approved document B, um, none of those systems were actually tested to the full-scale BSA 414 test. Approved document B gives statutory guidance on how external walls may meet building regulations, and there are two key options. The first is for each individual component of the wall to meet the required standard for non-combustibility, meaning that material is classified as either A1 or A2 under European standard EN 13501. The second route is to ensure that all combined elements of the wall, when tested as a whole installed system, adequately resist the spread of fire in accordance with British Standards Test 8414. But as Melvin Fora found, it's also permitted for developers to show compliance using desktop studies instead of undertaking a test of the installed system. This has been highlighted as a major concern by Dame Judith Hackett and many others in the industry. What we have learned from the Grenfell Inquiry is very little testing is done in comparison to the number and types of systems out there. The rest, the shortfall is being made up from by desktop studies. So someone said, I know you've tested that. Well, that's a little bit like that. So, OK, it'll be fine. This is Dr Jim Glockling, Technical Director at the Fire Protection Association, which is a national fire safety organisation involving the Association of British Insurers, Lloyds and the National Fire Chiefs Council. The organisation carries out research, testing and consultancy work for a range of clients, including insurers and the military. He was also presenting at the Tall Building Fire Safety Network conference and says that just liaising with UK government on building regulations is a challenge and notes that there's been no change to building regulations for 11 years. Unlike other countries, the UK has no mechanism for timely review. Post-Grenfell, he explains that insurers have identified 14 areas where there's considered to be deficiencies in current practice and more research is needed. These include test methods for cladding and residential sprinkler system standards. He also points to technologies that could make a major difference in tall buildings, yet are not used. Detection in, in the UK, um, when it comes to automatic uh, fire detection systems, automatic, automatically generated alarms, over 95% of them are false or unwanted. And that is simply unworkable and a ridiculous situation to find ourselves in. So we have fire and rescue services don't necessarily turn out. They will call challenge. They'll wait till someone phones in on a 999. Totally defeats the uh, reason for having anything automated. We have insurers giving no credit for them. Uh, and we have really, uh, a, obviously, a disbelief uh, that there is a fire from the occupants of the buildings. And I can tell you now, it doesn't have to be like that. There are sensors on the market now which are, detect more than just smoke. And in combination, you can very quickly, if you're looking for smoke and heat or smoke and carbon monoxide or heat and carbon monoxide, in combination, you've got a detector there 
Very simply, with no cost differential to current detectors, it's a mystery why they're not being adopted more. Well, it actually doesn't. I'll come on to that. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, they are when they sound, they, it is 80% likely that there is a fire, rather than just having someone smoking under a sensor, someone burning the toast, um, shower steam letting the uh, 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 activating the, uh, the the alarm. Um, but um, you know, why aren't we using these these in in place of what we've currently got, and why they're not being embedded into building regulations is a bit of a mystery. But I rather suspect the starting point for that has to be that uh, in the EN45 test procedures for uh, fire detectors, there's no immunity testing. They test, there, there are lots of tests for what they need to trigger on, but there's no, no test in there to say, actually, if someone's welding over in the corner there, I don't want that going off. If I do a release of shower steam, I don't want to go off. Burning toast as opposed to real fire. And until that gets incorporated into our standards, I don't think we're going to see a great deal of pro progress. But we do know from the work that we've done, they are very, very good bits of kit. We're told by the manufacturers the cost differential is minor, and we know that any modern type of um, uh, uh, alarm panel, when it comes to um, uh, uh, these new detectors, it's just a, a head change and a reprogramming of the panel. It's not a total system change. Glockling says that the testing itself needs to accurately represent the final system and that side-by-side -side tests undertaken with the same materials as used in DCLG testing, but assembled with a slight difference, gave different results. This is really important when considering whether or not to ban combustible materials on buildings, and Dr Glockling and the FPA view is that non-combustible materials should be specified. If you test the individual components, then likely is that you would be then pursuing a policy of non-combustible materials, and then when you collect those together, if all you're looking for is fire spread, rather than structural stability, you don't need to do testing of this scale. So let's remember this, this type of testing is a vehicle for the use of non-combustible materials where you essentially encapsulate them behind higher performing materials. And this is what the test is really seeking to do. But that introduces some challenges. Um, if you're encapsulating lower performing products or ones that could get involved with a fire, you're trying to separate them from fire. And so therefore, attention to detail is everything. And in terms of Everything needs to be very realistic. Certainly, the challenge you set it, uh, the, um, how it's installed, the fastidiousness with which it's installed, the quality of the installed, these are, an import, in, these are all vital things. If it doesn't happen on site, then maybe the validity of this testing to say it's all going to be all right needs to be questioned. However, a ban on combustible materials is by its nature prescriptive and goes against the recommendations in the Hackett Review, which calls for a performance-based approach to meet required outcomes. Had the ACM system been accurately and realistically tested for Grenfell Tower, there is no doubt that it would have failed to meet the requirements for external fire spread, meaning that had a robust performance-based system been in place and followed, ACM cladding would not have been used. Head of Fire Engineering Services for Kingspan Group, Tony Ryan, who was also talking at the Tall Building Fire Safety Network conference, said that the use of non-combustible materials is not a guarantee of safety because assurance of individual material performance does not reflect system performance. From a group perspective, obviously we're a major manufacturer of building products. Uh, we manufacture products that are combustible, non-combustible and of limited combustibility. We've carried out in excess of 1,800 tests globally. He agreed that realistic testing is critical, but disagreed with the suggestion in the government consultation that only using materials with the A1 or A2 rating is the safest approach. 
In our opinion, it doesn't guarantee safety. There's actually evidence out there that linear-based root compliant systems fail large-scale tests. So I don't know how that can be undoubtedly the low-risk option. Uh, there is evidence out there that systems that contain A1 and A2 type materials fail large-scale system tests. We think the most robust and regulatory system, regulatory system going forward should be underpinned by large-scale system tests. But one of the challenges to this approach is a lack of testing facilities. There is a lack of A414 test rigs currently globally. Um, and that makes the need for assessments. Okay, at the moment, you know, assessments or desktop studies are frowned upon, but that doesn't mean they need to be frowned upon going forward. Uh, so the current practice needs to be reformed, but with strict processes, procedures and competency checks, assessments that are underpinned by large-scale testing can be appropriate and effective. These are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the challenges and reforms underway in the UK to address fire safety in tall buildings. As we continue to learn from Grenfell and the entire tall building industry undergoes systemic change, manufacturers of new and improved fire safety solutions for tall buildings are also seeking to widen awareness of their products. In this series of tall building fire safety podcasts, we're going to examine some of these from fire management apps and modern detectors to smart sprinklers and evacuation elevators and structural designs to optimise evacuation. But a question remains as to how can the tall building industry be incentivised to employ some of the state-of-the-art solutions that clearly exist but are rarely used due to cost implications. Justin Francis of the Queensland Fire Service has a suggestion. We rate food. We rate restaurants, hotels, movies. Yet our largest investment, our property, and the apartment that my children will possibly one day buy, they will have no idea what they're shifting into. They will know that there's a granite bench top. They will know that there's a drop-off pool. But I've never seen foreign life safety advertised as a feature. And at the moment, there is obviously more interest in wanting to know what we're actually living in. So let's inform people. Let's let people have some information. Let's create incentives for new buildings to actually build above the standard. Most of the buildings that I've inspected are built to the minimum standard. We just need to get over this line to meet this minimum standard. Now all of a sudden I've got a six star rated foreign life safety building which actually sells for $10,000 more because they've implemented slightly above the standard. They've put in occupant evacuation lifts for people that are going to be over the age of 60 that may need assistance to evacuate. It creates incentives for older buildings. How do we address these older buildings? with these aging standards. Now we start putting a rating system to this building and we're actually informing people what they're living in. It puts pressure on these buildings to possibly improve and to give lengthy timeframes to, to factor into these upgrades. It informs the tenant. All of a sudden the purchaser of that apartment or the tenant is actually aware of what they're about to shift into. That's pretty powerful information. Am I gonna shift into a two star foreign life safety rated building, it might influence my decision, which now starts to, to put pressure on the industry to improve. The tenant and the purchaser demand for buildings of a higher rating would drive change in the building industry. So when we look at other sectors like the car industry and these environmental ratings, this has potential to actually inform people um, with some knowledge on what they're living in. In his research into evacuation methods from high-rise buildings funded by Australia's Churchill Trust, Justin Francis has been travelling the world, learning from global best practice. And in our next episode, we interview Justin to explore his findings and the fire and life safety rating system in more detail.
My goal at the end of all of this is that everybody should be able to visit, work, reside, and also manage emergencies in both old and new buildings with complete confidence for their own personal safety. And I don't believe we're there yet. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Bernadette Ballantyne, with special thanks to FireX International and the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network, where we heard from the Fire Protection Association, Kingspan Group, Greater Manchester Fire Service, Queensland Fire Service, Colt International, WSP, Johnson Controls and the Institution of Fire Engineers. Mixing and editing by John Young, Fact-checking by Rian Owen. Additional story development by Vilo Mitrovic. Big thanks to Jim Robertson-Moore. And our theme music comes from JM Sounds, with additional music from Pond5. Rory Harris is our executive firefighter. We'll be back next week with more. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app. This really helps others to hear about us, or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Addict, Blueberry, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters, or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And you can read about us online at rebe.media. Music